If you would, take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 16. If you do not have a Bible, there are some on the back table there. Um, Ken would be happy to hand you one. If you raise your hand, he can get you a Bible. Anyone need a Bible? All right. Looks like we're doing okay. Luke chapter 16. Um, We've been in the book of Luke for, if you can believe it, on and off for about two years now. Um, So we're going through the book of Luke. Um, And so we are in this passage now. This is just the next thing that we have. Um, So if you're with us for the first time, we're going to talk about money today. And we're going to talk about money because that's the next thing in the book of Luke. We don't talk about money every Sunday. We're just, that's what we're talking about. So I want to make that caveat. The other thing I want to say is that this is hard. This is a very difficult passage. So um, sometimes I, you know, we always want to be engaged, but I just want you to especially engage. And, and you need, it'd be good to have a Bible in front of you open to Luke 16 so you can see these words and check and make sure that I'm interpreting it. I'm doing, do, going to do the best I can, but I want to, us to walk through this together and, and try to understand what's, what's going on here. And so we're in Luke 16. Uh, verses 10 through 18. Uh, when I was in high school, I had a good group of friends. Um, there were probably about six of us, give or take, something like that. And they were all friends from church, and we hung out all the time, um, especially on Friday nights. Every Friday night, we got together. And we went to my friend Mike's house. I think his parents um, either loved us or hated us. I'm not really sure. But uh, they had a basement. We would go down in the basement, and we would just spend Every Friday night there we would hang out and we would spend the night and wake up on Saturday morning and then eventually go back to our own houses. But there, I, I, when I think about that, we were always laying claim to certain things. We were calling things. So we talked about shotgun a few weeks ago. You know, you have to call it shotgun. That's the person that gets the, the front seat. But when we were at Mike's house spending the night, we would all, there, was, there was only one bed in the guest bedroom. Everyone else had to sleep on the floor. And so when you got there, that was one of the first things that you tried to do was to lay claim. Like, I get... I get the bed. I'm sleeping in the bed, not on the floor. And then when we wake up in the morning, we always had these Pillsbury, um, the cinnamon rolls, you know, the ones in the, in the tube can. And, and depending on how many people were there, they didn't divide evenly. So you, were, you always want to be the first person to call the, the extra cinnamon roll. So we were always laying claim on all these, these different things. This, this is mine. I, I want this one. Uh, we, we do that in life. We're laying claim on, on different things. And, and what we're going to see here in this passage is that Jesus is laying claim on something. He's laying claim on things in our lives. And he's going to talk about the kingdom of God. And this is what I want us to see this morning. What I think Jesus wants us to see, it's this, that the kingdom of God lays claim on everything we have. The kingdom of God lays claim, calls, it's, it's, it wants everything that we have. So last week we started in, in Luke 16 and we said that the, the whole chapter is about money and possessions specifically in light of eternity. So the stuff that you have in light of the fact that it will not last forever and that you will last forever. And it's this instruction about how to spend money, how to think about money, how to think about possessions faced with the reality that one day they will fail us and one day we will die and we will spend eternity in one place or another. So we saw in the parable last week that Jesus is encouraging us to invest our, our money and our possessions in, in something that will last for eternity. So to invest it in, he says, making friends that will, that will welcome us into heaven. So that's one way to think about this chapter. Another way to think about this chapter is not simply money in light of eternity, but money and possessions in the kingdom of God. So 
how, how do we, as children of the kingdom of God, if we are brought in, if we are children of God, how in light of that do we think about material possessions? If we are our children of God's kingdom, what do we think about the stuff that we have? And what Jesus is saying is that in the kingdom, in this kingdom, the kingdom of God, it lays hold on everything that you and I have. We like to claim things as our own. We, we want to hold on to physical objects. We want to hold on to aspects of our lives. But Jesus in this passage is going to say, no, it's all mine if you are a child of God. Look with me at Luke 16. I'm going to start in verse 10 and read through verse 18. You remember last week we looked at this parable of the dishonest or the shrewd manager. And right on the heels of that, Jesus says in verse 10, One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, (laughs) heard all these things, and they ridiculed, they sneered at him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Interesting passage, isn't it? What's with verse 18 there at the end? Doesn't that seem totally out of place? Um, What's this talk about the law and the prophets? Let's try to work through this together, okay? So remember, the big idea, the kingdom of God lays claim on everything that we have. What does that claim on everything look like in our lives? First of all, let me give you the first thought. It's going to look like this. Faithfulness with all that we have. It's going to look like faithfulness with all that we have. There's this general principle stated in verse 10. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If someone is faithful in a little bit, they can be trusted with with more. But if someone is dishonest with a small thing, then then they will also be dishonest if you give them a whole bunch of things. So you can think about this with, with a child. A child is told that if they can... Um, meet this responsibility, do this daily chore every day, and if, if they're responsible with this small thing, then then maybe they can have a pet because it's showing that they're responsible and that they can take care of these things. Or, or at work, you have responsibilities that, that are yours. And if you are honest, you're hardworking in all of the small tasks that you are given, then then you will rise in that company. You'll be given more Responsibility. That just makes sense. That's sort of this general principle. Some people complain that they, they never advance in their company. But the reality is that, that they've never proven to be faithful in the tasks that they have been given. And some people say, well, you know, if I had a higher position, 
then I would be faithful. You know, if you gave me more responsibility, I would be more honest. And Jesus says that's typically not true. Unless someone is faithful in the lesser things of life, then we can be pretty confident that they will not be faithful if they are given greater things in life. That's a general principle here, and he's going to apply it specifically. But just think about that. We need to remember that. You know, if, 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 if we are not faithful in the small things of life, then we will not be trusted with the big things in life. Just think about that with your, with your job. Even, even serving in the church, are, are, are you trustworthy? Are you someone who can be relied upon? Do you show up on time? Are, are you lazy? Are you negligent with things? Do you say you're going to do something and then not follow through with it? And if, if that's what our lives are marked by, we're not going to get more responsibility. You're not going to advance at, at, at work. You're not going to um, have more responsibilities if you want to grow in ministry, but you say, I really have a desire to do these things, but then you never show up on time and you're not here doing things. When we, You know, that stuff plays into how much responsibility we are given in life. So that's a great principle for us to meditate on, think about in our own lives, isn't it? But Jesus then gets specific, because remember, he's talking about money and possessions. And here he, he draws this distinction between worldly wealth, earthly wealth, and, and true riches. And, and parallel to that, he says, he draws a line between what is another's and what is your own. So worldly wealth and something that is someone else's are, are parallel, and true riches and what is your own are also parallel. So the, the unrighteous wealth here, it just, it just refers to money, possessions, anything that we have. And Jesus says that, that if, we're, if we are unable to use these things in a way that honors God, if we don't spend our money in love for God and love for others, but instead only seek to gratify ourselves and to get what we want, then we will not receive true riches. The riches of the kingdom of God is what that means. It's things that we receive now and things that we will receive in eternity. Verse 12 kind of gives us the reason why. He says, if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, it's saying that everything that we have is not really ours anyways. It's someone else's. It's God's. God, God has given it. He's entrusted it to us. All that we have, anything that you have, anything, whether, whether it's a physical possession or a gift or an ability that you have or your health, it's, it's been given to you by God. It's been entrusted to you. And we are to be stewards. We are to be managers, good managers of the things that God has given to us. And if we are good stewards and we take everything that we have and we invest it in love for God and love for others, then he says we will be entrusted with true riches and we will be given things that are our own. Now, this is not prosperity gospel teaching, right? Because what this says, what prosperity gospel teaching, which it's hard to even call it gospel, is that if you, if you sow your seed, right, if you, if you give money, then God's going to bless you. He's going to bless you with money and, and, and cars and houses and all the things that you want. If you give God your money, then he will give you this car or this house or a bigger paycheck, don't listen to that stuff because it, it's it is it's talking about using unrighteous wealth to gain what more unrighteous wealth. That, that's not at all what Jesus is talking about. That's anti kingdom that exalts God's gifts above God, and that's not at all what he's talking about here. Rather, what Jesus is saying is that if you use your money faithfully, if you invest it in things that truly matter, then you will receive. 
true riches. It has nothing to do with material wealth. It has to do with true riches, with things that will last for eternity. These are blessings in this life and the life to come. But they are beyond material blessings. They are, they are the salvation of a soul that you love. They, they are the hug from a stranger that you help. They are satisfaction of helping someone in need, blessing someone with your hospitality, making friends for yourself that last for all eternity. These are, these are true riches. These are what will truly satisfy us and what will truly be ours for all eternity. So don't believe this idea that I take my material possessions and I invest them in things and then I'm going to get more material possessions. That doesn't even matter, and that's not kingdom. Kingdom is take your material possessions, invest them in things that are actually going to last way longer than the material possessions, because as we saw in verse 9, those things will fail in the end. So, part of what Jesus is saying here is that riches are a test. They're a test of our faithfulness. Your money, all of your stuff is given to you by God. And, and if we are children of God, if we are part of His kingdom, then we are called to be faithful with that money and with those possessions. Not simply to look for ways that, that we can use our money to invest in ourselves, but rather looking for ways that we can leverage our money, that we can use our money to get true riches in this life and in our eternal life. So how are you doing with that? How, how shrewd are you? With your money, how faithful are you with your money? I listened to a sermon by Mark Dever on this passage, and he said, "A passive approach to money is not Christian." It struck me. A passive approach to money is not Christian. You can't be passive with your money. In fact, a passive approach to anything in the Christian life, it, it, any, to anything in life, is not Christian. We need to to not waste our money, just as we need to to not waste our time in silliness, and we don't want to waste our gifts and our abilities, but we need to invest all these things in things that will last for eternity. We cannot be passive with money. We need to think hard. We need to be shrewd. We need to be discerning. We need to think ahead about how we want to use it, not just as individuals, but as a church, too. We need to be wise with how we use our time as a church. How, how, we, how do we use our building? How, would use, how do we use our finances? How do we use the people that God has sent our way? We need to be wise in how we invest these things. We must be faithful with who God sends our way and the neighborhood that He's placed us in. We need to be faithful with all that God has given us. So, how are you doing with this? Are you faithful? Are you investing your your treasure, whatever it might be, in things that will last for eternity? Be faithful. So again, the kingdom of God lays claim on everything that we have, and it calls us first to, to faithfulness. Then, linked to this idea... It's in verses 13 through through 15, and it's this, that we are called to devotion to God alone. The kingdom of God is laying claim on everything, and that's going to look like devotion to God alone. I think the kicker of this whole passage is just that phrase, you cannot serve God and money. Jesus says it's impossible, it is impossible to be devoted to God and to be devoted to to money. It's impossible to love God and also to love money. It's like trying to root for U of L and UK when they play each other. It is impossible, right? It's like trying to root for Pacquiao and that other guy that he just beat up last night, right? You can't root for them at the same time. They are opposed to one another. So so why are 
love for God and love for money, why are they opposed to each other? Why does God say you can't do that? Because you might say, well, maybe I can do that. Let's ask a different question. The question is, what is an idol? What is an idol? An idol is anything that we might look to that would give us the things that God alone is supposed to give us. So, so we, we, we look to anything else to give us what God has said He alone can provide for us. It's something that we worship with our time, with, with our thoughts, even with our money. And, and, and a love for money here is actually more like a worship of money, a trust in money. Remember, Paul says to Timothy, it's not money that's the root of all evil. What is it? It's the love of money that's the root of all evil. The love of money, that desire, because the love of money leads to idolatry. It's going to look like you looking to money for your security rather than you looking to God for your security. It's going to look like we hope in money rather than hoping in God. Or we're going to seek our happiness through, through things rather than through God. We, we're going to find our greatest joy in, in travel and in clothes and in gifts and in cars and in nice restaurants that we can go to or anything else that money can buy rather than finding them that, that joy in, in God alone. Then that money is an idol. It's, it's when we invest our, our time and our energy in Investing our money or, or caring for our home or, or planning for our retirement rather than seeking the kingdom of God. Then it becomes an idol. And that's why Jesus says you can't serve God and serve money. You can't love God and love money because you're going to worship one or the other. And if you worship money, it, it's an idol. So when the Pharisees hear this, what do they do? They ridiculed Jesus. Why? Because they loved money. (laughs) Because they heard Jesus say, you can't love God and love money. And they said, well, we love God. And we love money. So that can't be right. Maybe Maybe you feel that. Just check your own heart. When I say you can't love God and money, do you say, sure I can. (laughs) That might be a pharisaical heart rising in you. I, th- I think when the Pharisees heard this, I just want to give three thoughts that I think they may have had that caused them to say, to, to ridicule and to sneer at Jesus. And if, we're, if, if we are honest with ourselves, these are three thoughts about money and possessions that we also have. So when we hear that, you can't serve God in money. These are things that we might think. The Pharisees say, money is a blessing from God. So to have it means that we are blessed. So the Pharisees say, money is a blessing from God. So I have money. You know what that means? I am blessed by God. They they saw their their wealth as an evidence to everyone else that they were loved by and that they were right before God. There is a sense in which this is true, right? That, That money and possessions are a blessing from God. Any good gift that you have is from God. But... But material possessions and wealth are not a foolproof sign that that you are being blessed by God. In the same way that poverty is not a foolproof sign that you are being cursed by God. In fact, the entire book of Luke would speak against that. The entire Bible would speak against that. Doesn't Jesus say earlier in in, in Luke, blessed are the poor? 
And isn't Jesus' ministry marked by a special care and concern for those that actually have no possessions and no worldly wealth? And doesn't Jesus himself go through life with no place to lay his head? So to say that, that God's blessing is, is in money is a sign that he has accepted us, is, it, it, it's not always true. Remember, Jesus is here. He's calling us to vote to devotion to God alone. Devotion to God alone. How sadly ironic that, that something given by God can become an idol that we worship instead of Him. We may go as far as the Pharisees and say that we think material blessings justify us. That's what they say there, isn't it? Or Jesus points it out in them. He said, you are those who justify yourselves before men. So here's what they, they say. Life is going well for me. I have everything that I need. I have more than what I need. Therefore, God must be happy with me. Because everyone else thinks that God must be happy with me. Everyone else is looking at me. And everything's going well for me. And they say, wow, you are blessed by God. You must be right before God. And they believed it. But they thought that that was that that was true. Many people assume that material blessings means that you are right with God, and lack of material blessings means that you are not right with God. Money is exalted in our culture. That's kind of what it says here. It's what is exalted among men. Money and treasure and possessions are exalted, but in the eyes of God, what's he say? The love of money is an abomination in the sight of God. An abomination. There's a phrase in verse 15 that is, is both a sucker punch and a hug, depending on who you are. And it says, God knows your hearts. Jesus looks at the Pharisees and he says, God knows your hearts. God knows what's going on in there. God knows what you love, what you really like. The Pharisees were so concerned about their standing in the eyes of, of others that they lost sight of their standing before God. They assumed that if everyone else thought that they were blessed by God, then they were blessed by God. But Jesus reminds them that God knows their hearts. He knows their idolatry. He knows their their wickedness. He knows that they trust in good works. He knows when we trust in good works, when we trust in the blessings that we have, when we put our confidence in, in things other than Christ, when we think about that we are accepted before God because of the amount of money that we have or the works that we do or the charisma that we have, Whatever anyone else thinks, though, God knows our hearts. And even if we're justified before them, if we're not justified before God, what does it matter? The only way we can be justified before God is through repentance and faith. So the the Pharisees thought money is a blessing from God. I have money, so I am blessed by God. We often think that, but that's not always true. The second thing I think that they thought is this. What I give to God is God's. Everything else is mine. <laughs> what I give to God, that's, that is God's. But everything else is mine. Elsewhere in the Gospels, the Pharisees exult in the fact that they had devoted everything to God. And they loved the fact that they tithed everything. They gave a tenth of, of everything that they had. And they assumed that in doing that, I gave this to God, so the rest is mine to do with as I please. I can do whatever I want with it. But the, the way that they used their money then revealed that their devotion was not to God, but was rather to 
money. They proclaimed love for God with their mouths, but when you looked at their credit card statement, you said, I'm not sure what you love, you know. Have you ever heard that, that you can tell a lot about what people love by looking at their checkbook or their bank statement? Jesus says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. It's an easy trap to fall into, isn't it? That that we think that, that there's this quantity of money that I owe to God. And once I give Him that quantity of money, then I'm allowed to do whatever I want with, with, with the rest. But Jesus calls us to, to more than that, doesn't He? He's calling for full devotion. He's not calling you just to write a check to the church or to give some money to the needy when you have the opportunity. But he, He's asking for everything. He's laying claim on it all. Everything that you possess. The word mine should not be in our vocabulary. But my kids often say that. This is mine. This is mine and I want it. And I think often about, I think it's in Finding Nemo. Isn't that what the seagulls say? Mine, 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 mine. And they're fighting over these fish. And sometimes with our possessions and things, we, we get that, that sort of attitude of just, this is mine. This is, i got to hold on to it. We become golem-like. This is my precious, you know, and I will keep it. No one is allowed to take it from me. Now, the point here is not that I'm saying you need to write bigger checks to the church. That's not, that's not the point. I'm not even issuing that. And it's not that you should sell everything and give it to the poor, though maybe you should, because Jesus does give that as an option. But what I am saying is that, that member, as members of the kingdom of God, Jesus lays claim on every cent, not just 10%. It's all His. So we have to find a way that we can use our money, all of it, for the glory of God. Could that be through a vacation, or a new car, or a nice home? Yes, sure, of course it could be. But but could it also be in spending less on me and more on people in need? Could it be as Christmas approaches? Could it be making Christmas less about presents for ourselves and more about gifts to the poor? Could it be less about acquiring more things for me and instead about seeing all of the surplus that we have and finding ways to give it away? Could we consider, just think about, how, how can my home, which is a gift from God, be used for His glory? How can my car, which is a gift from God, be used for His glory? How can the food that I have be used for God's glory? How can the clothes that I have be used for God's glory? How can anything that He has given to me, how can I find a way, Not it's not always just giving it to the church or giving it away, but how can I use what I have in a way that pleases God? Because He wants all of it. I think another way that some people, some thoughtful Christians are starting to think about, and I'm way behind on this, but trying to figure out, is that we need to think about when we do spend our money, where are we spending it? What are the kind of companies that we are investing in? Are we inadvertently supporting things that we as Christians are against? Who makes your clothes? Who makes your shoes? We need to think about that. We need to be savvy shrewd consumers and think, I want to invest in places, even if it's going to cost me a little more, that that are promoting the things that God values, that are promoting human rights, that are that are showing love towards others. It's not always just about paying the lowest price, but we need to think, where's this money going? How is this serving others or hurting others? 
So the, the Pharisees are, in a sense, they're saying, what do I need to do to pass? What, what do I need to just, I, I just want to get by. Is it just 10% and, and a few alms to the poor? Then that's what I'll do. That's what college students around the world are doing right now. They're saying, what's the worst grade I can get and still pass this class? And Jesus says, in his classroom, he always wants 100%. All of it. It's all mine. You have to give it all to me. You need to be completely devoted to me. So the Pharisees say, what I give to God is God's, everything else is mine. And Jesus says, no, it's all God's. The third and closely related thing is that they say, we keep the law. I think that's really related in some part. Part of the reason they're sneering at Jesus is because they saw themselves as as law keepers in every respect. They were doing what they were supposed to do with their money. They were keeping the law, even to the point of using their money. And they said, Jesus, you're the lawbreaker. You're the one healing people on the Sabbath. You're the one eating with sinners. You're the one that's breaking the law. So, so who are you to give us this kind of instruction? Because we're the ones that's doing what, what is right with our money according to the law. They assumed that they were right before God in all these areas, including in the realm of money. This is how we can approach God again. We, we can think this. We can think, I tithe and I give to the needy when I can, and I, I, I'll, so I can buy whatever I want. I'll invest in whatever I want. But again, Jesus is calling for everything. And in verses 16 and 17, this is where it gets a little tricky. There's this... This proclamation that Jesus says, I have the right to make these kind of statements. I have the right because I am here to fulfill and to fill out the law for you. He says, the law and the prophets were until John. So he speaks about the law and the prophets. This is a summary of all the Old Testament. Moses and the prophets. The law and the prophets. They were in effect until John. So this is, this is the law that the Pharisees are saying that they are keeping. The law and the prophets. This is what we're keeping this. And Jesus says the law and the prophets were in effect up until John. John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the last and the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. And he is the forerunner to Jesus. So that's in effect until now. And then he says, since then, since John, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. And everyone forces his way into it. So since then, Jesus is proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God, calling people to repentance and faith. And those who hear it, he says, and understand it, are forcing their way into it. That's a tough phrase, but I think it's this idea that that they are doing everything they can to get down the narrow road of salvation. They, they're being wise. They're being diligent. They're being shrewd. They are, they're like this man in the parable. They're thinking forward. And they said, we've got to get into the kingdom. We're going to press into it. They're thinking ahead. They're seeking the kingdom. Like Jesus is, and Jesus is urging them to. So what verse 16 sounds like to me is that Jesus is saying, the kingdom is here. The law doesn't matter anymore. You guys are keeping the law, and that doesn't matter anymore because the kingdom is here. You could say that that's what Jesus is saying if verse 17 wasn't there. Because in verse 17 he says, But it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. So it sounds like Jesus is saying, The law was in effect until I came, and now it's the, the good news of the kingdom. But then he says, But nothing of the law will pass away. Not even the smallest stroke of the law will pass away. I think what he's doing here is, is 
part of the reason is that Jesus is going to fulfill the whole law. He's going to keep the whole law on our behalf. He's born under the law, and he keeps every bit of the law on our behalf. And we fail to keep God's holy standard, but Jesus doesn't. So when we come to him in faith, we come to him as the one who has fulfilled the law. He's done everything perfectly, and he gives us his righteousness. But I think the other thing is that Jesus is saying, I have come to reveal the true depth and the true gravity of the law. You guys are keeping it to the letter. Let me tell you about the heart of the law. It's what he does in Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, right? So he stands up and he says, you guys have heard it said, and he quotes Old Testament law. You've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. And then he says, but I say to you. So here's Jesus on a mountain, like Moses, talking about the law. And he says, you've heard it said, X, Y, Z, from the law. But I say to you, this is the new. But it's not new. It's the heart of the law. So he says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. And so all the Pharisees say, we don't. We don't commit adultery. But I say to you, if you lust after a woman in your heart, it's as if you've already committed adultery. He says, let me get to the heart of this. So you guys can keep the letter. But can you keep the heart? Because that's what really matters here. So he's saying, listen, you guys, you think you got it all figured out because you tithe and you give and all this stuff. But you're missing it because I want everything. I want you to be fully devoted to me. You say you keep the law, but let me get you to the heart of the law. That's the point of verse 18. Verse 18 seems like it's out of left field, but what Jesus is doing is he he picks this law. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. So he pulls this law out of the Old Testament law and says, here's where I stand on marriage. Why did he pick that one? He picked it because the Pharisees were lousy when it came to marriage and to divorce. The the Pharisees in their law basically said, you can divorce your wife for any reason. You can look at Pharisaical law and they say, if your wife burns your dinner, you have the right to divorce her. If someone more beautiful than your wife is willing to marry you, you have the right to divorce her. So Moses had given this stipulation that they could divorce, but only because of the hardness of their hearts. But the Pharisees picked up on that and said, you can do it. You can, you can divorce. It sounds a bit like our, our culture, doesn't it? Sort of this, you can divorce for, divorce for, for any reason. This way of thinking about marriage allows people to look like they're committed when actually, in actuality they, they are not. They're simply seeking to fulfill their own desires through multiple marriages. So so Jesus says to this group that thinks he's a lawbreaker and thinks that they are the law keepers, he says, you want to know about my commitment to the law? I'll give you one that you guys aren't doing. Let's talk about divorce and marriage. Now, I want to be clear. This is not the full teaching of the New Testament on divorce. And if you want to talk about that more, we, we can do that. There's, there's a clause in Matthew 19 called the exception clause that, that, we, that Jesus talks about. There's words of Paul in 1 Corinthians. But I think the point here that Jesus is making is his baseline word on the matter is don't get divorced. That's not what marriage is intended. Marriage, is, divorce is not an option in marriage because marriage is, is meant to be a lifelong commitment between a man and a woman. That, that's what it's intended to be. So if, if you're throwing that away, you're, you're missing the whole point. It's a promise 
for the two of you as long as you both shall live. So Jesus is saying what God says in Malachi 2.16. God says, I hate divorce. I want to be very clear. God does not say, I hate people who get divorced. That is not what he's saying. If you have gone down that path, it is not the unpardonable sin. There is forgiveness even for that. In fact, I think that people who have gone through divorce understand God's statement, I hate divorce better than anyone else. Why does God hate divorce? Because it's nothing but pain. Because these two lives that have been brought together are now being torn apart and it causes pain. And, and if you've experienced that in any way, whether you or someone else, you know that. We know why God hates it. Because that's not what it's intended to be. And so, what's Jesus saying here? Jesus is using this as an example of the kind of commitment that he has to the law and the kind of commitment that we are to have to him. And Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God lays hold on everything in our lives. And in light of this commandment, there is a call to integrity in all our commitments. I think that's the last thing. Faithfulness, devotion, integrity in all our commitments. In money, in relationships, in every part of our lives, we are to live with pure hearts, with integrity, with, with honesty. Now, we've all failed in these things. Even, even if we have never been divorced, if we go back to this whole idea that Jesus says, about, about even if you lust in your heart, it's as if you have committed adultery already. We've all done that. We have all, none of us have been fully faithful. None of us have lived with full integrity in our relationship with God. And the same is true with our money. None of us have let our money be completely committed to God. Jesus calls us, He, he wants us to give Him everything. He calls us to faithfulness. He calls us to devotion. He calls us to integrity. When he was asked, William Booth was the um, founder of the Salvation Army. It's 1865 that the Salvation Army was started. And William Booth um, had a heart to reach out to people in London and the surrounding area that no one else wanted in their church. And he started to proclaim the gospel to them, and people just started getting saved all over the place. And churches wouldn't take them in, so he started these posts of the Salvation Army because uh, he was he was taking the kingdom by force. He was he was working as a soldier, as it were, and people saw that in him, and it was a great success. And when someone asked him about the secret of his success, this is what William Booth said. They, they said, "What is the secret of your success, William Booth?" He said, "This I will tell you the secret." God has had all there was of me. God has had all there was of me. There have been men with greater brains than I. Men with greater opportunities. But from the day I got the poor of London on my heart and caught a vision of all Jesus Christ could do with them, on that day I made up my mind that God would have all of William Booth there was. And if there is anything of power in the Salvation Army today, it is because God has had all the adoration of my heart all the power of my will, and all the influence of my life. I think that's what Jesus is talking about here. I think that's the question he asks us. Does God have all of you? Does he have everything that is yours? Are we fully committed to him? 
Are we going to be faithful with all that we have? Are we going to be devoted to God alone? Smashing all the idols that want to rival Him. Things that we want to turn to and try to find satisfaction from them when He alone will satisfy. Are we devoted to Him alone? And are we filled with integrity in all our commitments? Are we people that are above reproach in the commitments that we make with our finances, in our relationships, in everything else? The call of Jesus is a call to complete commitment. And in the kingdom of God, God lays claim on everything that you have. So does Jesus have all of you? Let's take a moment of silence to reflect on God's word. And after that moment of silence, I will close this in prayer and we will sing a song. But let's, let's let God speak to our hearts from his word this morning and then I will pray. Lord God, there are things that, that we're ready and willing to, to put on the table before you and say it's yours. And then there are things that we're holding on to and saying just not that, though we want to keep that to ourselves. We want it to be ours. I pray that by your Spirit you would identify those things in our lives, help us to see what we're holding on to, what's keeping us from complete devotion. Lord, to see your, your loving hand outstretched saying, that's mine too. Lord, you're laying claim on that. And if we are fully devoted to you, Lord, then we will receive those true riches. But if we will give you everything that we have, then you will bless us beyond anything we could imagine. Lord, we're not really losing things by giving them up, but we are gaining true riches. Lord, forgive us. We, we love stuff. We love things. And they always disappoint us. But Lord, you never do. So help us to, to freely and willingly lay down our lives and our possessions, our relationships, Lord, anything that would keep us from you. Lord, let us be a church that does the same, that, that we are faithful in what you have given us. We are devoted to you alone. We are filled with integrity in the way that we use the resources that we have. Lord, so do a work in our hearts. Lord, I pray too, if there's someone here who they've, they've never thought about this, they've never thought that Jesus can satisfy in this way, they've never thought about giving their life over completely to Him, about becoming a part of this kingdom of God. Lord, I pray that if, um, I pray that you would draw them to yourself and that you would save them today. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.